Welcome to Middlebrow. This is my best friend, Olive. And this is my best friend, Lindsay Schultz. She puts up with all my bullshit. I don't know why she's my friend. Because I love her. She loves me. By the way, Sagittarius and Leos really are supposed to be best friends. I see multiple things about it all really? the time. Don't even get me started on this <laughs> shit. I will go forever. This is Metal Round. Hosted by a Leo and a Sagittarius, which means... Nothing but fun. <laughs> many, many and things. so many lies. So much truth. That's so funny. I was literally about to say so much truth happening. <laughs> because we only tell the truth, or I only tell the truth. It's like brutally honest. Doesn't mean I know things. Right. It's the truth that you think it is. How I feel. Yeah. You'll always get my real opinion. That's for sure. That's why I have to cut out so much. It's bad. It's really bad. I've already cut out 10 minutes so far and it's only been three minutes. Yeah. I already had to cut out 20 minutes just before this. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Uh, this is a podcast hosted by completely average human artists. We talk about art. We try to be super interesting and not fall over our words. What is the term? We try to be interesting. We try not to butcher things in other languages. All sorts of things. It's for artists and for people that want to know about art but are intimidated. Trust me we're right there with you i feel like i never say this the way i want to say it i guess people don't have stuff they don't say that right they just say this is a podcast about murder i don't know if it's even recent but some russian i think it was russia this guy maybe like 20 girls and he dressed them up like dolls and he lived with his parents but his parents thought he just had a weird hobby of making life-size dolls and didn't know they were actually girls no fucking way yeah Oh my God. It's like every time I hear another incident like that, I'm like, there is no one crazier on the planet. And then you hear another weird one. And you're like, <laughs> what in the holy shit is happening? Yeah. Like I, the one murderer that like made smoothies of Coca-Cola and blood. Like I don't, Ew. I can't. You remember that one? No. <laughs> and then he had mac and cheese in his pockets when the police <laughs> came. No. <laughs> That would be me, the mac and cheese part. <laughs> yeah. Just if I went crazy, I would definitely put mac and cheese in my pockets. And it's on the go now. <laughs> How has no one made a gogurt pack full of mac and cheese? Is my question. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. That's my excuse. Um. So Guys, this is a really. Ex- I feel like you know what exas exaster. Ex- you know what makes. Uh, my interrupting of you worse is the lag. Exasturbate? Exasturbate? Sounds too much like masturbate for me to use it. (laughs) Exacerbates. Exacerbate. Sounds like masturbates, but fine. Exacerbates. Exacerbates? Yeah. But I think people say it like exacerbates, but I think it's exacerbates. Okay, exacerbates. You know what exacerbates? (laughs) I can't do it. It really makes it worse. The lag, t- the like <laughs> half a second to one second lag time is enough to just make my interrupting game so oh, bad. On Skype? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> then I'm like, I definitely interrupted her. I just didn't realize it until a second later, which is like, in my mind, it's like four seconds too late, you know? Yep. <laughs> okay. Anyways, 
Anyway, there was something else I really wanted to say. Oh, well, I forgot. Oh, I know what I was going to say. It was about being, it was about Spanish. Poncho is a thing you wear. <laughs> a poncho? From our last episode. It's a poncho. The word is does not have an N in it. Oh. It's the bad word. Don't tell anyone that. It's a, not a nice word to say. What does it but mean But I just wanted, oh, it means like someone who's not Mexican enough or like Hispanic enough or oh. white enough. Oh, I have an update for my thing too. Do you? Yeah. So I talked to George again about the the like westernness of him. And he mm-hmm. said like, yeah, a fraction of people might have it be for aesthetics. But he said most of all, I think it comes out of more of a jealousy in the sense of he can get away with a lot more where people who are full Japanese need to know like how to speak really formally or if they say something, you know, they're just held to a higher standard. Where Interesting. more Western people just have the ability to get away with more because, like, they're just given a pass. Like, okay, he might not know. That's so interesting. I would have never thought of that. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, this is a really exciting one because, one, we got to be in person together. Yeah. Two, well, one and a half. We already recorded this in person together, but we didn't have our mics yet. And we just love everyone so much. We want you guys to enjoy it in good audio. Two, we got to go to the museum together in person and get to know all the facts about our buddy Cliff. It was magical. We took selfies. So long. (laughs) People were watching us do it. They didn't want to interrupt us. Uh, We listened to some amazing Bach played by Cliffy himself. No, it was Beethoven. Whatever. Olive got laughed at by these two people who did not understand what she was doing. (laughs) I'm sorry, Cliff. I just don't like purple in your paintings. It's very rare that I like purple. Do you like purple? Let's talk shit on purple. (laughs) What I love about doing this is we get to be productive, but we also get to just catch up on each other's lives. I know. It's like an excuse to just chat. <laughs> just notice this about myself. I can't not do something. It's it's like a sickness. I have a problem. Mm-hmm. Reading a book in the bathtub. No, Mm-mm. that doesn't like for one second. And then I'm like, okay, now the water's cold. Yeah. And I just kind of want to get out. It's really uncomfortable. I just don't like baths. You know what? Maybe I don't either. <laughs> This whole time I've been trying so hard to like baths. Tone baths. Okay. Yeah. Cliff. So yeah, this was special, special, special. Mm-hmm. We were there in person. We saw the work. What did you think about his work? I mean. Oh, we're just going right into it. I'm sure it. you've seen it. Yep. I know he would hate this. And we already talked about this before, but I'll stop saying that. His whole thing was that he wanted to move away from other artists and what he can actually talk shit on everyone and said everyone was stealing from him but (laughs) i think it's because as much as he would hate it and hate all the curators and museums that are not his own his work is shown together with other abstract expressionist artists so i've always seen his work in relationship to those other artists so it's hard to see it the way he wanted us to yeah i guess like not in relationship to other artists their colors their brush strokes it makes me realize i don't know much about any of the abstract expressionist painters except for maybe uh pollock but i just think of pollock as a dick no offense pollock's children did he have children i know a little bit about mark rothko 
I know. I don't even know much about him. I love his work, but... I had to look up a bunch when I took Maggie to the museum, and I wanted to know, like, I knew what I was talking about. Oh, you're so cute. So I, I did you. some research. Oh, I have not... This is very intense. I have a really important question to ask you oh. later, not on this podcast. <laughs> and it's not... I mean, it's just, like, I should you not just- said anything. <laughs> I always freak you out. Just say it now. I'll cut it. Okay, but it's really serious, though. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Jesus Christ, I'm sorry. Tears are all <laughs> over my glasses right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love you. You're my best friend. I love you. You're my best friend. <sighs> okay. Yeah. I think also I always got the impression that they were supposed supposed to be mysterious kind of like that it was just this transcendent thing and they were supposed to be almost godlike or whatever there really wasn't a rhyme or reason for the first time kind of Hmm. you were spot on well it helps that we already did this episode (laughs) (laughs) it's so hard to be normal yeah i'm like trying to make jokes again to you (laughs) and you have to pretend to laugh again and like (laughs) I keep wanting to preface everything like, we already talked about this, yeah. but, and then, like, say it so you don't judge me. <laughs> like, I saw you ru- you wrote things in there that we did yeah. in the first episode, and I'm like, don't do that. You're going to make me nervous now. When I bring it up, I'm going to be like, do I pretend like we didn't talk about this? Or? Oh, by the way. Uh, Voldemort eyes. Ugly lines in Voldemort and saggy lips. Am I speaking abnormally now? Our dead giveaway is just an accent when we're lying. (laughs) Oh, yes, your hair looks beautiful today. No, I think my hair looks small. (laughs) Let me introduce your new pal, Clifford Still. Spelled with a Y. Clifford Still was a painter. He was an abstract expressionist, which, for people who don't know... Ab X, as the cool kids say. Um, and by cool kids, I really just mean Mark Bradford. Oh, well, yeah, he is a yeah. cool kid. Ab X was a post-World War II art movement in American painting developed in New York in the 1940s. It was meant to encompass not only the work of painters who filled their canvases with fields of color and abstract forms, but also those who attacked their canvases with a vigorous gestural expressionism. The movement's name is derived from the combination of the emotional intensity and self-denial of the German expressionists with the anti-figurative aesthetic of the European abstract schools, such as Futurism, the Bauhaus, and Synthetic Cubism. Uh, Also, I love the way you pronounce aesthetic. Aesthetic? Say it. Aesthetic. Yeah. Aesthetic. It's nice. I'm just complimenting you. Just take it. Aesthetic. 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 <laughs> Additionally, it hasn't. <laughs> you look so sexy when you do that. I don't even know how. Additionally, it has an image of being rebellious, anarchic, highly idiosyncratic, and some feel nihilistic. That's the nicest way anyone's ever said nihilistic. <laughs> And Cynthia, nihilistic. <laughs> Someone please invite me to be in their metal band. <laughs> their growls all the time. Your growls are just my favorite. You're just lying to me. 
<laughs> you kind of sounded like that girl with the curly hair from Misfits. <gasps> oh my god, I forgot about that show. I love Misfits. If we had Instagram followers, I would <laughs> ask the Instagram followers to tell me if they've seen that show. Yeah. And if they haven't, they need to go watch it. Okay. In practice, the term is applied to any number of artists working mostly in New York. There's also some in the San Francisco Bay Area who had quite different styles. California abstract expressionist Jay Muser, who typically painted in the non-objective style, wrote about his painting. It is far better to capture the glorious spirit of the sea than to paint all of its tiny ripples. Clifford Still was born on November 30th in 1904 in North Dakota and spent his childhood in Spokane, Washington and Bow Island in southern Alberta, Canada. Oh my god, was he a Sagittarius? Is he? <laughs> like you? I'm sorry, I'm gonna oh look at that. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, yep, that's a Sagittarius. In 1925, he went to New York and briefly studied at the Art Students League. And that is an art school known for its broad appeal to both amateurs and professional artists, offering reasonably priced classes on a flexible schedule. Although students may study full time, there have uh, there have never been any degree programs or grades. And here are some notable alumni, because uh, it's pretty crazy. Ai Weiwei, Louise Bourgeois, Alexander Calder, Eva Hesse, Donald Judd, Lee Krasner, Roy Lichtenstein, Georgia O'Keefe, Barnett Newman, Jackson Pollock, Robert Rauschenberg, Man Ray, Damn. Norman Rockwell, Mark Rothko, Robert Smithson, Frank Stella, Cy oh Twombly, basically everyone. Cliff was 21 when he went to go to the Art Students League. Are you trying to avoid the yep. quick math conversation? Yep, I'm just going to skip over that. <laughs> no, so what's 153 divided by 2? I have no idea. Don't even try. <laughs> this is what George makes me do in grocery stores. We get... Wait, why? Because whatever our receipt is, we always split groceries. So he's like, he takes the number and he's like, okay, what's this divided by 2? Why doesn't he just get his phone out? Because <laughs> he can do it. He's just testing me. Why would he test you? That's mean. <laughs> I think it's like 75 or 6, right? 76.5. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. That was kind of cool. <laughs> he always tries to test me just to get me sharp. He just doesn't want you to get Alzheimer's. Yeah. What if we called it old timers? Do people actually say that? I've known many people to say that, and I am too shy to tell Aww. them that it's wrong. Like they have old timers? <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say. No. And it makes me really sad because it's like, if you correct them, they're going to be so embarrassed. So I just want to spare them from that. Okay. Clifford still attended Spokane University in 1926. Quick, how old is he? 30. <laughs> when was he born? I don't know. 1904. 26. No, don't do this to me. 21. I hate it. I hate it. If I, I wouldn't even he's, date George. I'd be like, stop it. We're broken 22. up now. 22. It's like I knew that and I still was freaked out. I was like, maybe that's not right. He attended Spokane University in 1926 and 27 and returned in 1931 with a fellowship graduating in 1933. That fall, he became a teaching fellow and then a faculty member at Washington State College, which is now Washington State University, where he obtained an MFA in 1935 and taught until 1941. Still married August Batten, 
Batan. In about 1930, they had two daughters, one in 1939 and one in 1942. The couple separated, though, in the late 40s and then divorced in 54. It happens. I mean, Cliff seems really intense. <laughs> Here we go. This is the stuff. <laughs> okay. Olive loves that we hate <laughs> so much. I hate it. I'm sorry, Cliff. I hate it. Here's some paintings we're going to post from like 1935, 1936. Let's just post one. Okay. We'll post post this face. It's too ugly to post more than one. (laughs) We'll lose followers. The Clifford Still Museum is like, stop talking shit on the early work. (laughs) It looks like it's just black sand dunes and then a floating mask face. With an overbite, no nose, like Voldemort, which is a valid. Mm-hmm. That was valid. And then, uh, and then, uh, babe, come here. What? Can you describe this painting real quick? Looks like Voldemort. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah! Oh, I called it. Oh yeah, we call him Voldy! <laughs> That's real. It looks like Voldemort. With a creepy hand. But with no eyes. Super like, yeah, a creepy hand is just like literally creeping up on it. Like he's trying to put it next to his face. Like he's tired or something with some long, gangly, knuckly fingers. The worst colors, like ochre, (laughs) which can be nice, but not next to gray sand dune mountains and bad lines. Those high cheekbones are scary, too. Really sunken in eyes. Usually they're very attractive. Yeah, but they're not. He's got a small small top of his head. Which, you know what that means. Zika virus. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, many had a small penis. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean, Zika virus? (laughs) You know, parents who got the Zika virus and were pregnant, they have babies with small heads. Oh, my God. No, I didn't know about that. Okay, so Untitled, circa 1935, (laughs) is characteristic of the artist's work from the late 20s to mid-30s. It was executed in the town of Nespelem on the Colville Indian Reservation, where still co-founded an artist colony in 1937. So he also did these drawings of native people on the Colville Reservation in Washington State, which... Olive, you really like these. Uh, I do because more I'm just thinking of the time period. I feel like he captured them in a really like a true and benevolent light. I don't know. I feel like people of this time period are probably not looking at Native Americans and being respectful of their mm-hmm. culture and their ways and just who they are. So he kind of captured them in a really beautiful way that... It's respectful and it seems loving and careful. And that's what I like about it. And obviously he was interested in it, which is what you kind of picked up in his work. Yeah. That it has some references or just inspiration or it pulls from that sort of right. thing. When we were at the museum, I asked you if there was any history of him being inspired or worked closely with any Native American influences because his color palette looks very spot on and just like that like that jaggedness of mm-hmm. his composition like certain paints like it looks like the patterns that gets put into even the if you think about it i feel like there's a lot of just 
vertical repetitiveness mm-hmm. in Native American blankets or weaving stuff yeah. or their patterns. So when you see his work, it looks a lot yeah. like that. So here we'll post some of these two. There's some drawings that he did on the Colville Reservation and then some stuff on farms. Some Sagnatchies. Some, some structures, some early farm and worker drawings, color studies with landscapes. These were all made between 1930 and 1936. They exemplify Still's early interest in recording the work around him, especially the landscape as well as the other most enduring theme in his ouvoir, the figure. Sketches that capture motion, riding, plowing. (laughs) (laughs) Riding, plowing, pulsating, (laughs) masturbating, exacerbating. (laughs) Sagnatchies. Coexist with studies of grain elevators and other buildings that stress robust structure. (laughs) Hey girl, you got that robust structure. Since drawing necessarily involves simplification, three-dimensional volumes become two-dimensional planes and lines. It always entails a certain degree of abstraction. Early on, Still drew inspiration from this aspect of the medium. His pastels and watercolors of the Alberta landscapes were strikingly abstract for their time, almost as though the stroke of the brush or the crayon condensed the scenery into an idea rather than an illustration. The pastel stick itself provided a ready-made mix of color and line making. That's why I don't mix my own colors. In 1937, along with Worth Griffin, a colleague at Washington State, they co-founded the Nespelem Art Colony, which produced hundreds of portraits and landscapes depicting Colville Indian Reservation Native Americans, their life over the course of four summers. It's a long time. It is a long time. There was a lot of talk about the influence of Native American on art abstractionism, but you don't ever see any actual depictions of Native Americans, says Anfim. Gaps in the historical record aside, assessing the impact of Still's experiences at the reservation on his later paintings remains contentious. An influential study by art historian Stephen Polkari finds imagery in Still's early 1940s abstractions modeled from Native American war clubs and other ritual objects. Anfam, which is who's a still scholar, David Anfam, and the museum's adjunct curator, sees Still's contact with the Colville tribes as playing into his earlier preoccupations with totemism and animism. Animism, I don't know what that is. The attribution of soul to plants, inanimate objects, and natural phenomena. Oh, okay. A belief in a supernatural power that organizes and animates the material universe. Hmm. Totemism is a belief in the kinship of a group of people, common totem. The word totem is derived from the Chippewa word, meaning kinship group, signifying a blood relationship. So preoccupations with totemism and animism, and he dismisses the possibility of mimetic correspondences between Still's abstract forms and the club's thunderbirds and upteen other tribal items they might resemble. Anfem asserts nevertheless that Still's contact with the reservation encouraged him to adopt the mantle of a latter-day shaman opposed to the corrupt decadence he perceived in western society. I kind of agree with him but I also agree with that it does kind of look with well I'm not saying it looks like thunderbirds or any of that kind of stuff but 
it's just more the feeling and the idea. So I get what he's saying, and I kind of I think it has to be somewhere in between. If you spend so much time there, it's yeah. hard for it can't to be not one or the other. To your practice, you can't separate them. How could you separate them? That's impossible. Okay. Cliff relocated to San Francisco in 1941. Um, at this time, when the United States entered World War II, still relocated to the Bay Area, where he worked in shipbuilding and aircraft construction for the war. <clears throat> um, he also had his first solo exhibition in 1943 at what is now SF MoMA, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Must be nice. <laughs> Must be real nice. <laughs> Yeah, I really, really don't want to show this here. I'd rather have my own museum, but I guess it's my first solo show. Like, you can have so some Just don't of have it any here. of their work in the same part. Don't even get it halfway in the room nope, with my work. Doesn't work for me. I like how crazy it is. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> There's some crazy people where you're like, uh, yeah. no, you're a dick. And then other crazy people where you're like, I he don't just like seems it. really clear, and I like it. That's it. He's not really being mean to any. Well, maybe <laughs> Greenberg or He's whatever his name is. Imbeciles. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about the imbeciles. He's also not the greatest dad, but he's also just being clear. Like this is what I want. Yeah. We're mad about that because none of us can say what we want clearly. True. He taught at Richmond Professional Institute, which is now Richmond Commonwealth University. From 1943 to 1945, and then moved to New York City. In the city. In the city. So here's some stuff that will also post maybe some of them. Uh, Is this where you take off? Oh, God. Yeah, I don't think I'm prepared, but I'm going to do it. The title for this portion of the podcast is called Relationship. We don't know anything. <laughs> it's called, we have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, this portion is actually titled, this is what I titled it, Relationship with Galleries and Art World slash Control Issues. Uh, Cliff went, so after wherever you left off, you were saying he was in San Francisco. Yeah, he moved to New York City. Yeah, so he moved to New York first he did like extended stays in the late forties. Um, then he kind of started working with two galleries art of this century opened by Peggy Guggenheim, which if you know, art Guggenheim is a pretty famous name and Betty Parsons gallery. Both were galleries that played a really big role in the success of artists of this time period and the traction of the whole movement, the abstract expressionist movement. So he was in with the cool people, basically. And he lived in New York in the 50s during the height of the movement. Um, He did kind of go back to San Francisco for a little while. But, mm, oh, where is it? Still returned to San Francisco uh, to be a professor at the California School of Fine Arts, which is now San Fran Art Institute from 46 to 50. So then he moved back to New York after that. So he's kind of bouncing around, but mostly he was in the scene. He knew all the people. He was buddies, Rothko was his bestie. Yeah, he was buddies with Mark Rothko. <laughs> he could drink mm-hmm. him under the table. Yeah, they were kind of saying, they, people, someone quoted. Uh, this is the, <laughs> the difference between you and I is so clear in this <laughs> one where we do it together. <laughs> some, some guy, I don't know who. It's a quote. It had quotes around it. It's real. Um, someone said that he... <laughs> uh was kind of more quiet or whatever but 
if he really felt like he needed to, he could drink Rothko under the table. So I feel like he had this personality that was all controlled and this and that, but then he had some spunk to him. I mean, obviously, he asked for his own damn museum. He's got something going on. So And Mark Rothko... He met while living in San Francisco, and Mark Rothko is the one who actually introduced him to Guggenheim. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah. she gave him his first show. And then after Guggenheim closed her gallery, Peggy Guggenheim, um, he and the other Ab X artist joined Betty Parsons at her gallery. Good add in. Now I lost my. So it wasn't at the same time. It was like first Guggenheim, then Parsons. So he had his first solo show. In New York, his first New York solo show, I guess, was in 46 at the Art of the Century Gallery. And this is when he really starts hating everyone in the art world. (laughs) He starts resenting aspects of the art world. So the gallery made artists, quote, give over their entire output for a salary drawn against future sales. And he felt like this was indentured servitude that's really intense i wouldn't call anything indentured (laughs) servitude that is a very intense thing to say he hated the power of the galleries he hated critics the curators he felt like they didn't do shit to nurture his creativity (laughs) by the 50 the 1950s he started to withdraw from the art world altogether even from his peers Mm. so Rothko was like, well, why aren't you drinking me under the table anymore? And he was Stop like, talking you to know me. what? Get away from me. Stop talking. The problem is, Rothko, you just keep talking about yeah. my work, and I don't like it when you talk ideas. about my work. And you still stole all of my ideas. None of your fame is your own. It's mine. Yep. He was intense. Uh, for example, his daughter's going to listen to this and be like, what? <laughs> it's not what he said. Just kidding. She's going to agree with us because she knows he was intense. For example, he was super close to Rothko, as we have said. Rothko wrote his catalog text for the Art of the Century show, Art of This Century. But during this period, he made it known that he was disappointed in him for selling out. He straight up went to Rothko and was like, I'm disappointed Mm -hmm. in you, just like a father would. And that's way worse than saying I'm mad at you. So he didn't really think he was better than other artists. It was more that he thought they should all be writing the rules of their own careers, which is, I think, why Lindsay and I are giving him a pass for being a dick, because he's really just trying to promote everyone being true to themselves and not letting people take advantage of them. I mean, I totally get it. And I think it's a really romantic idea of being an artist and something that I even wish I could cultivate today. Like even in LA this weekend, there's like five art fairs happening at the same time. I'm not even kidding. Freeze Los Angeles is here. Then the spring break art show, then Felix art show. Then there's a desert art show. And... Uh, then there's Art in Los Angeles Contemporary. It's nuts. Five. Five art shows. I think there might be one more, but five on the same weekend. That's crazy. Did you watch that movie on Netflix about Jake? Oh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. But I feel like if you don't know about art and you watch it, it's kind of an interesting yeah. watch. It's a little bit of a satire about the whole hmm. art yeah. world. So anyway. There's also a really good book called Seven Days in the Art World. Oh, okay. Good. But you can really see that art is a commodity. And it's something that, I mean, some artists love to be a part of that. And others, I think, 
do feel really used like you're just a pawn in a greater monetary exchange and it isn't romantic anymore it's so hard because don't we want that in some way we want it to be valuable enough to to make it worthwhile for us to create something why why i mean i think many artists would create regardless but i would want people to buy my work because they really loved the work not because they're hoping no for sure buy it because there's a person in the room telling them to buy it to appreciate and value and that's their interest it's not like they could give a shit about what's on the canvas yeah but don't you think that well, okay, maybe I'm a typical Sagittarius. I'm super optimistic. I my what I was gonna say is, don't you think that most people that c- collect art, while that is a goal, and that's fine for everyone to have a monetary goal. It's not unlike every human, but don't you think that they also appreciate art? I mean, yeah, I mean, they obviously. You're saying some if someone is gonna go in there with no feeling towards any artwork. I mean, if they have someone being like, "This one's gonna be valuable," and you look at it, maybe you just look at it longer and be like, "Oh, I see why someone would think that's valuable." I think it can be divided. I think some people who are doing their own collecting are definitely in it because they love the work and got into it originally because they loved collecting artwork and usually have artists that they specifically collect and work with. I think there's other people, though, that have people doing that business for them, and they have people buying works and selling works and whatever as an investment that is no different than people who hire people to do their stock exchange stuff. Yeah, So I guess there's good and bad everywhere. Where are we? He thought they should all... Okay, so he said he thought they should all be writing the rules of their own careers. Pollock and Rothko didn't disagree with that. So it's not like all the artists were like, hey, fuck you, man. They're like, yeah, but... Uh, They were like, yeah, 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 that's great. But like, I want to live and not die of starvation. His family was like, that's not nice of you because we're hungry. (laughs) His daughter even said he didn't really support us in any way, financially or emotionally. So they didn't disagree with that. They just didn't play it as hard as still. That's what Dean Sobel Mm -hmm. said. People didn't like his private approach. They resented that they made no money with him. This is what Lindsay was saying. (laughs) She sharply criticized, arguing that critics and scholars focused their gaze upon the decade that granted them the greatest success. That was Sandra still, his daughter. So she's basically saying they didn't like Clifford because they couldn't sell his work because he wasn't about people buying his work. And so they were like, eh, screw you. We're trying to make money here. And he was like, I'm just trying to be who I am. So Clifford was misunderstood. I read all this stuff about how arrogant and standoffish and tied to the idea of his own genius he was. And I was, I would never say disillusioned. That's not a word I would use in normal conversation. But I was, I was disillusioned. (laughs) Um, Another favorite painter of mine ruined by the truth of his personality. Uh, But it might not really be true. In reality... Uh, yeah, I, I really don't think he was arrogant and an asshole. I think more than anything, he had these impulses that were really controlling. <laughs> we diagnosed him with OCD. No big deal. And we're just doctors now. <laughs> he just seemed so compulsive and so intense about everything. He yeah. he had to leave his family and he had to work and he had to make a painting, bring it down, make a painting, bring it down. This is one of those things that I feel as an average artist and not like a prolific artist is it's the same as the almost the same as the idea that we all have to dress weird which i embrace that i like it but 
there's also this thing, it's like you can't really be normal if you are mm. super intense about something. Like sometimes people who are artists that I know are more intense than I am. I feel threatened because I wish I had no filter on me. But I also have this pragmatic part of me that's like, yeah, but I want to have a family and I want to, uh, it isn't, but some people don't give a fuck. And I feel jealous. I wish I didn't give a fuck. Mm -hmm. Okay. Still's insistence upon controlling the exact circumstances under which his work is shown, coupled with the exhaustive documentation of each work's exhibition history, would suggest that he regards the presentation of his paintings as an integral extension of the creative process. He's not going to be able to control it, though. I think that's the problem that everyone has with it. It's like, okay, you can try really hard and have your own museum, but... Your paintings are in books about abstract expressionism right on the same page with everybody else. (laughs) Much of the mystery, however, resolves into perfect sense if one draws a proper distinction between the art world, quote unquote, with its commercialism, politicking, and the rat race competition for prestige and glory, and the organic process and growth and development that is fundamental to art itself. Still's notorious quote-unquote demands his legendary aloofness and attacks on critical existus exis 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 critical explanation or interpretation of a text Attacks on critical explanation of his work. Okay. Rather than the other way around and to reaffirm the primacy of the visual experience over the verbal. Yeah. Which he talked about. He wants people to experience it visually. He doesn't want people to talk about it ever. Don't talk Even about his friends. Still's work. So he rejected an offer. These are, <laughs> these are examples of how intense he mm-hmm. was. He rejected an offer for a solo show in a museum. Would you do that ever, by the way? <laughs> Just get a poll. Would either of us reject a solo show in a museum? Probably not. Would you, if they only weren't willing to demonstrate a real commitment? What does that even mean? They're interested? And yeah, if they like- were interested, I'd be like, great. He's like, no, tell me it's real. He rejected a publishing house's many attempts to make a book of his work. Many attempts. I just would never reject many attempts because, (laughs) quote, they demanded a picture before they would proceed. That seems normal. They're making a book about an artwork that's visual. They can't have a photo? He would never be on Instagram. No way. (laughs) Way too controlling for Instagram. Yeah. Uh, And he wouldn't. This is even crazier. He wouldn't let people take notes while in conversation with him. He was intense. He said very little about what his work was about when asked. And he said that people should look at the work, quote, people should look at the work itself and determine its meaning to them. Adding, I prefer the innocent reaction of those who might think that they see cloud shapes in my paintings to what Clement Greenberg says that he sees in them. So we went into this whole thing about his letter. If you are a true person who's interested in this, you should 100% go to the Smithsonian Archives or whatever Mm -hmm. and look up Clement Greenberg's letters to Clifford Still and Clifford Still's letters back. They are very dramatic. Can you just pull it up? Okay. All right. I should. I should. Here it is. This is a sentence. The two sentences. 
I would appreciate it if you will use more than a little caution before you accept weapons in the guise of metaphors or bouquets, which may be poisoned to kill us both. As I noted in the beginning of this letter, spit has already been thrown in my face. Inevitably, it marked only a preliminary gesture in the serious business of assault and defamation to follow. Yours, Clifford Still. Clem's like, dude, it was just a birthday yeah. invitation. He's like, it's not a big deal. <laughs> uh, so he didn't give his painting titles because that would encourage the interpretations he deplored. He disliked group exhibitions because they put him in the context of other artists, God forbid, or suggested he was part of a school. When curator Dorothy Miller persuaded him to participate in a landmark 15 Americans exhibition at MoMA in 1952, he insisted that his works be shown in their own room. Sandra, his daughter, shares her father's attitude toward the museum. She said that night before the opening, he went up there and looked and Dorothy Miller was showing one of his works halfway into someone else's room and he had to go in there and get it back. Quote, don't do that. <laughs> Give the artist the chance to be seen for who they are. What is what do they mean like halfway into there? Is it like like one long wall and then like that's funny two, 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 i just kept picturing it like there was a room and then there was like a short hallway into another room that was my that's just how i pictured it but i have no idea uh more than any other artist still insisted on controlling the fate of his paintings he seldom allowed them to be exhibited even then only under strictly limited conditions he wanted them sold only to collectors who he believed had insight into values involved he ordered Betty Parsons to, quote, allow no one to write about them. No one <laughs> in capital letters because his, quote, contempt for the intelligence of the scribblers I have read is so complete that I cannot tolerate their imbecilities. There's the imbecilities. Oh <laughs> He's not. I mean, he could just be like, I don't like them that much, but he has to yeah. be really intense about it. I wonder, because I've seen his paintings at, like, MoMA or other, you yeah. know, they're part of collections. I want to ask the curators how they feel about showing his work in a way that he would hate. They probably don't give a shit because they know how impossible it is. And that he did, even though he feels like he's the only one, let's be honest, he pulled from others just as much as they pulled from him. He lived... He didn't live in a vacuum away from everybody. He's mm -hmm. friends with Rothko. He was, all these ideas didn't just come to him out of nowhere. Uh, so he manipulated his own history. He required and destroyed early canvases, removing titles from his paintings, and at the height of his fame, refused to allow exhibitions of his work. So he made a zillion things, and he had no room to make them. So rolling paintings is something you do only if you absolutely have to. The fact that all of his paintings were rolled and then some of them were rolled together was kind of an issue. So it's usually a temporary condition for painting, something you only do long enough to get it through a small door or from one large room to another. He, But he only had so many stretchers, said his daughter, Sandra. Uh, he had to roll up the painting so he could do the next work. There were surges of energy in the months that he could paint. The artist worked in the barn of his farm near Westminster, Maryland, and it was not usable in the winter because it was cold as fuck. 
and probably wet and debris everywhere. Not good. He had to go to the next and the next, and the works evolved from one to another, which is kind of another thing we talked about, right? Them kind of, this them mm-hmm. flowing into each other. Yeah, like and a not mindset. working on like sort of a body of work and then changing and then you know working off one painting to the next and back and forth like he would make one roll it up make the next one roll it up and it was this very linear progression yeah uh it's counterintuitive to roll a canvas with the paint layer facing outward as he did but i knew it but Lindsay knew it's much safer still rolled as many as 11 canvases together you want to know why I don't like when you say that. I always think something is my fault when you say that. You want to know why? Because you talk over me, bitch. Why? Stop. <laughs> no, why? I knew that. Because I was thinking about when he was rolling canvases. And then I started thinking about if I were to roll my work, how I would do it. Because, yes, instinctively you want to roll it with the paint on the inside. So when you roll it up, it's kept safe from everything on the outside. But then if you think about it being stuck that way and trying to unroll it, it's been like condensed like onto oh, itself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We so then about when those. you unroll it, it starts cracking as you're trying to fold it backwards. Mm-hmm. So and if so if you roll other it way. curved outward, then you just like curve it in onto the stretcher bars yeah that makes so much sense. i wonder if people who don't paint if they would ever think of that no because you don't think about paint drying and getting sticky yeah. yeah. <laughs> true <laughs> oh still rolled as many as 11 canvases together with nothing in between around a cardboard tube or in a few cases a metal drain pipe so fancy of him <laughs> then he secured the roll with masking tape, wrapped it in plastic sheeting, and stored it vertically. When Ramsey, Ramsey and her team unrolled the canvases, they discovered that some paint layers were still tacky. That's absolutely nuts. That just goes to show, don't use oil paints. <laughs> don't Never dry. Go with acrylics. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's more beautiful. Sure. Maybe it's more archival. Sure. sure. It will not dry. He also didn't give a shit about what happened on his painting. <sighs> For someone with so much control issues, there was so much shit on his paintings, like finger- <laughs> fingernail clippings and dirt and What if he put those in hair. there on purpose? If he had, if he was that type of guy, he would have written a whole thing about why he did that on purpose. But he wasn't. He was like, if you want to see clouds, you can see clouds. Eventually took over the still house in New Windsor, Maryland, where a couple had moved from the farm. Where the couple, him and his wife, had moved from the farm. The late art critic Catherine Kuh, hey, Kuh <laughs> described the large white columned house next door to a funeral parlor parlor as quote filled to capacity with multiple rolled canvases each identified by pat with a small sketch of the original yeah pat is his second wife so clifford still remarried to patricia alice garski it was one of his students at washington state scandalous teacher and in 1961 they moved to a 22 acre farm near westminster maryland in 1966 where him and his wife pat purchased a 4300 square foot house which is the one that you're describing 
And then uh, it's eight miles from their farm, which is where. Eight miles? Oh, I pictured it like, I'm going to walk over to the studio now. <laughs> like, no. Oh. Yeah. So he really wasn't there <laughs> with his family. He was not. He's like, bye, I'm going to sleep eight miles away from you. In her memoir, Cuz Memoir, My Love Affair with Modern Art, she wrote that only a cramped section of the kitchen was reserved for sociability. So all 40, pretty much all 4,300 square feet of that house was rolled up canvases, if you can even imagine. He would have a creative surge in the middle of a cold winter, Sandra, his daughter, said. And he would go to Woolsworth and buy a stock of construction paper, which Lindsay and I are pretty confused by. And go into what we call the piano room. Construction (laughs) paper. So many colors. Why not in his paintings? We don't know. He got these. So many questions. Yeah. So. That's it. Sandra. I keep saying his daughter. I think you know it's his daughter right now. Sandra recalled that still was spread out a canvas on the floor. And. Oh. Okay. (laughs) So. This is my problem. Hmm. Uh, Now we're talking about kind of part of his process. Not about the construction. Paper. <laughs> Sandra, Sandra recalled that so would spread out a canvas on the floor and swab on hot rabbit skin glue sizing with a mop, uh, which is a lot of rabbit skin glue. Yeah. So much. Still almost always prepared his own paints from powder pigments and boiled linseed oil and applied them with palette knives. He seldom used a brush. His paint layer, Ramsey said is lean with a lot of pigment and not that much oil, which you can see if you see them in person. Mm -hmm. It's like grainy almost. Yeah, looks like wax, but in a good way. So Lindsay's going to explain this boiled linseed oil. Nerd alert. Nerd. Nerd. Tell us about rabbit skin glue. (laughs) Oh, I'm here to tell you about rabbit skin glue. (laughs) What I've used it for is sort of like gesso, and it's to like seal the canvas off so the paint doesn't slowly decay the fibers. Also, so it doesn't, so it sits on top of it and it doesn't soak in. Yep. Correct? But it also, you put it on and it, when it dries, it tightens the canvas. So they use it for, like he said here, sizing. Right, right. So when you make a canvas and you tighten it and you staple it, it's still pretty loosey goosey and like floppy. And so I don't, I was telling Lindsay that I used to just spray water. I learned to just spray water mm-hmm. on it. And then it would, when the water evaporates, it tightens across the stretcher bars. But you could just use gesso, gesso as water, or you generally mix gesso with water, mm-hmm. which gesso is just like a chalky white base layer paint that you can put down and sand and make a nice base layer for your, whatever you're going to make. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't soak into the canvas as well. And you can't use you can't use rabbit skin glue with acrylic because it'll start flaking off. And also we looked at how why you boil linseed oil because I've used just like straight up linseed oil, and it is to have your painting dry faster. But <laughs> but then don't roll them in eleven things together. Yeah, and never open them until you're dead. So the replicas, uh, I really love. They're my loved. favorite. They're my favorite too. So the Clifford Still Museum had an entire show on this. He basically painted multiple versions of the same painting. And this is where Lindsay and I decided he had OCD. Yeah. First of all, he wouldn't make sketches of his paintings after he painted them. He'd paint an entire mm. six by six canvas or whatever. And then he would make sketches of them later. 
And then he also would make multiple canvases of the same exact painting, but with small changes and like a little bit different shapes, kind of, but very, very similar. The colors are tiny bit different. Like the yellow is darker on one. Anyway, it's like this for all of these where there's just like these slight differences. It's like you're playing around in Photoshop and you select a thing and you're like, I'm going to change this color a little Mm -hmm. bit, change the size of this a little bit. And you're just kind of tweaking with things and just playing with it like, well, I like it better like this or like this. But he's like remaking the entire entire painting. (laughs) He made it and then he's like, I just don't like it that much. I would just paint over. I'd be like, no, I don't like that part. (laughs) We're like, I'll just paint it a little bit lighter. See what I think. That purple is just not working. (laughs) okay Okay, i need to just tell the story of that yeah go for it (laughs) because we were in the room and this couple was looking at this huge massive blue painting and right to the right wall of it was another piece and it had this little purple down on the bottom right hand side and olive comes like marching in with a really strong walk (laughs) which i didn't learn about until like three times she told the story on the third time she was like you know how she walks decisively and i was like what and everyone, everyone else in the room was like, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, like, and then she like stops really. With my dog, Martin. Abrupt. Yeah. <laughs> then she stops in the, the room really abruptly, throws her hand out, and is like tilting and cocking her head. Well, looks like she's waving at the painting, basically. <laughs> I was. And then she like shows her head for and then just continues stomping on. And this couple looks at her and starts giggling and i'm standing right next to them being like they're clearly laughing at her i'm her friend they're gonna know pretending not to be you're like i don't know her oh weirdo i know so i walk across the room and i say oh are you blocking out the purple yeah that was exactly what i was (laughs) doing but that's something i'm trying to think if that's something you learn kind of like in art school, I feel like you just kind of learn those things where you just because the teachers do not. that they like block them off and be like, oh, what about yeah? You know, what like, if it didn't have this? this out? Yeah, I wonder if he would be angry that they did a whole show of his replicas. Ooh, probably angry at yeah. <laughs> Okay, we're gonna play. Don't a game. show my paintings in relation to other people or in relation to, to each to other. Their own work. Okay, we're gonna play a game, which we'll play on Instagram, even though no one will okay. play it because we don't know anyone. Here we go. What's your favorite on this first one? I think I'd still go left. Oh, really? I was going to choose right. Okay. The yellow ones? Right. I like the orange on the left. left. Yeah. I like the orange on the left, but I would still go right. Okay. I'm going left. Because I like the orange, but I also like the yellow on the top right. These two are basically the same. The blues? The right. Yeah, the right. Left, I think, on this one. I go left. I like the green. It's more subtle. Bottom one, left. Yeah. The purple's not as intense. Uh, stills, what is this about? Oh, this is just talking about if we do have some sort of interpretation of a few things in his work. Mm. Trying to think about meaning and concept. His aptitude as a draftsman was overshadowed in part because he rarely displayed his representational drawings. And also because by the mid 40s, the representational forms in his early paintings were powerfully refigured in jagged flashes of pigment and textured surfaces. Uh, art historian Richard Schiff points out that a figure, quote unquote, can refer to a representational image. But the concept also relates to metaphor as in a figure of speech. To figure or refigure is to apprehend or make sense of something through something else. Playing one kind of knowing against another. The Still Museum collection reveals, in effect, 
the trajectory of Still's creative struggle to transform his figurative habits from the first to the second sense of the term. Mm -hmm. Behind all my work lies the figure. And he describes those verticals particularly when they become just lines as lifelines, says Sobel. You see shafts of wheat, but these really aren't about landscapes. They're about energy, that force that keeps plants growing vertically. The abstract expressionists refused to tell us what they were intending in their paintings. That's why I got that idea of them. Mm, Because that was definitely a thing. They were like, we're not talking about it. Uh, And then complained that everyone got it wrong. But in weak moments, (laughs) still actually told us a great deal. So death represented by things that are horizontal and life represented by things that are vertical. There was a whole show on Sandra's perspective, which was his Sandra, his daughter. His Sandra, his daughter. Just in case you didn't remember, yeah. His daughter, <laughs> How many Sandra? times have I said it? She has her own podcast or her own podcast episode. I don't. I think it was remember. an episode. Yeah. Episode. In this, she picked a lot of the ones with the earthy tones. Mm-hmm. It was interesting because I would not have selected these ones, but she this was... one down here, the one that she's standing in front of, but to the right, actually looks very much like a Rothko, Rothko? in a yep. Clifford way. Yeah, it does. Oh, that's what we. We were talking about before right he actually redid i don't know if it was this one or another one so she talked about darn it i wish i'd written that down there was darn just some, it oh because oh, i didn't swear <laughs> oh gosh darn it anyways um <laughs> that shows how bad my language is <laughs> she was like taken <laughs> aback by my use of darn it yep. sandra was saying that There was someone's work that he recreated. I think these are the ones. They were his own recreations. And she said it was his own way of saying that he would have done it this way. And it would be better. Like he redid their work and was like, it would look better this way if I and if I were to do it. That's so I remember. He's a crazy. Okay. So the painting selection of her of the exhibition that she was helping in, addressing the museum director, Dean Sobel, Sandra said. You're not showing the earthen colored or bare canvas works. You've got the big blues, the reds, and the blacks. There's a lot more going on between those. There is magic there. But she readily acknowledges he wasn't the best parent around, especially in her younger years. He put his art before his children, disappearing frequently for long periods of time, showing up just, this is the saddest sentence, showing up just about when we were ready to put him aside and forget him. The relationship improved as Campbell got older and still, Campbell's Sandra, <laughs> and still made peace with his personal life and grew closer to his family. That's kind of nice to know that later in life he was like, all right, I'm chilling yeah. out and I love you guys. And I'm, I was going to say, I'm sorry. I don't know if he said I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Her memories of neglect are mixed with keen observations of his love for Beethoven or Bach, whoever or- you really think it is. No one knows. <laughs> Actually, people do know, but I don't. His dedication for painting and, for better or for worse, his unrelenting belief in the genius of his own work. Still believed in his talent so much that he held on to 95% of his lifetime output, fearing it would fall into the hands of people who didn't appreciate its importance. He trusted no one. Aww. Clearly. When prodded for more details about how she remembered her childhood without a parent or the challenges it presented to her mother raising two girls alone, she said, he rarely supplemented. His teaching never supported us. If he sold a work, it was to buy another canvas. It wasn't for us. I knew early on we were secondary. The work always came first. 
Well, and that's the end of our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> to just end on a nice note there. No, we have death now. <laughs> so he did die, just in case you guys were wondering. He's not so alive. So he got transferred to a hospital when he was sick. He was dying of colon cancer, if I remember correctly. But when he was in the hospital, the doctor suggested that he paint or draw or do something to make him feel better. Yeah. And it was really intense, as per usual. I was just explaining <laughs> to the doctor that he there's no way he could paint right now because painting is supposed to be something like of life and when he's at his best. And if he painted something right now, it wouldn't be at his best and it would actually be... Like, an, you know, the painting wouldn't be at its best either. Yeah. And like not a correct representation of who, of him and his work. Yeah. He refused to paint uh, the last bit of his life when he was sick. Um, and then on June 23rd, 1980, he passed away at 75 years old. That's young. 75 is young. I know. I used to think that was old when I was a kid, but now I'm like, damn, that's really young. Oh, another thing I really wanted to add, which I think in the last one I had more facts because I had the window up because I had been researching him. But I was really curious about why his muse special museum ended up in Denver of all places. Oh, yeah. And he didn't really. I read that he spent a little bit of time in Denver. He taught at the boulder university for a lit for like a summer or something and he would come here for vacations and he really loved being in the mountains but he never made anything while he was here but he loved colorado and but that really didn't have much to do with it it was more just he wanted his own museum and he wanted it Mm -hmm. built specifically for his work and he wanted only his work there and he was a hard ass about that point and it was all in his will and denver eventually was the only place that was like yeah we want we want him we're gonna do it so i think a lot of places it was kind of up for grabs and people were unsure and i think denver was the first to be like yeah we'll we'll spend we'll do it time and space and we love you cliff and i think 17 million dollars of it it costs more than that right we talked about that it was was like like 28 28 million to build this small Concrete building. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Though. It's so gorgeous. Oh, it's all the ceiling. concrete. Uh-huh. And the ceiling moves. Well, the ceiling doesn't move. But the something in the ce- So the ceiling is like a... You'll see in all the pictures on the Instagram. It's like perforated almost. Like there's just holes everywhere in it. Like a net. It kind of looks like a net. Like a concrete yeah. net. And then above that, there's a mechanism that moves the daylight. So all... As the sun moves, it moves... To make it so that the best light is hitting the paintings. Yeah. At all times of day. So that's rad. But 17 million of it was raised. Is it also, is it just for best light? I'd assume it's also so the sun is balanced evenly so paintings aren't getting. Direct sun. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it is partially the natural light thing. Yeah. But also, yeah, I don't think I saw a single time that the light was coming directly on any of the work. So it was just like this perfect filtered, beautiful mm-hmm. sunlight all the time. And then there's a few light, like track lighting and stuff. But so Cliff. that is our buddy Cliff. Don't talk about him. Don't talk about anything that he made. Don't talk about him in general or you'll end up like Greenberg and get a nasty, strong worded lettered letter that ends up at the Smithsonian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we want to keep doing this forever and we probably will. But so if you like this, rate us. I'm so scared to say this out loud. Rate <laughs> rate us, our friendship and our voice and what we talk about and who we care about. 
and review us and subscribe. At least subscribe to it if you like it. And hey, maybe one day, like, if you're super interested in artists and people start giving us suggestions, that'd be so fun to learn about all different kinds of artists that people are into. Yeah, that'd be amazing. We have a ginormous list already of people we want to do episodes on. I know. Mine's gotten so massive. Lindsay worked on her list so much, and I was very upset. I came back and she took all the good ones. And I was like, hey, bitch. I kind of want to give them a preview. Where is it? Okay. You have, she has two pages and I have one page. So I got Stuart Davis from last time. I have Hilma F. Clint, which is going to be fun. I got Bob o- Robert Overby, which I'm so mm-hmm. nervous about. And I think we should bring Miller in on that one because she yeah. has all the facts. Yeah. I got Keith Herring, uh, John McLaughlin, all the white, all the whiteies. I, I wanted you to do Mike Kelly. Too. Yay! She left Mike Kelly for Ooh, me. Ooh, Carrie James Marshall. Yes. Yeah, I'm really excited about that one. Uh, I'm excited you left him for me because yeah. I know you saw I, him on Art 21. <laughs> I don't know what this Art... I know what Art 21 is, but I didn't look up Art 21 artists. Mm, I just was like perusing. It wasn't like a list or anything. Hmm. It was just a bunch of ones that were included in their videos. Okay. I got Ray Johnson, which is kind of a good... Yeah. Like, you know I, you know who else I should put on there? Who's the other guy who did all the black flag? Petty Bond? Raymond Pettibon. Oh, yeah. I should put him on there. Uh, Rose Wiley, which is like that super old artist. She's like famous at 83 or something. I thought that might be a fun. Some of them I was just like, I don't know much about them, but it would be kind of interesting to talk about. Anyway, Basquiat, Psy. I got Jeff McFetridge. That'll also be an interesting (gasps) one because he's not super... He's my friend on Instagram. Fine, already. I know. And I was like, Lindsay's going to love it because she's going to be able to talk horses and about <laughs> how they're <laughs> best friends. <laughs> Tell them yours because you have really good ones too. So, okay. I'm not going to go through all, but my Thank next you. one I want to do is on Eva Hessa, <laughs> um, Mark Bradford, Rachel White Reed, Injadeka, Cornelia Crosby. I'm um, so excited. Uh, Irma Blank, Charles Gaines, um, Charles Gaines Agnes Martin. It's so um, telling of our two. <laughs> Carl Andre. Carrie Tribe. That's good that you're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I worked for her. Yeah. That I makes love her sense. work. Yeah. Um, Joseph Boys, Sophie Cal, Judy Chicago, Felix Gonzalez Torres, Barbara Kruger. I have too many whiteies. Like, there's so many from a certain time period that I'm so into. I'm going to oh, add them this anyways. And then- from. Uh, Nonaka Hill Gallery that I went to see, the Kazuo Kadonaga. Mm. I also really want to look up some people on like Netflix documentaries. So I was thinking of doing that. I haven't seen it yet, but that boxing. What is that guy? Oh, the yeah. Boxer, him and his wife. Yeah. Someone in the box. Like baby in the box or something, something like that, that was yeah. the, um, their documentary was so good. Yeah. I almost started I watching loved, it and then I was like, I better actually pay attention. It was sad because him and his, anyway, we'll talk about it then. Okay. But um, <laughs> you should do maybe like him and his wife together in an episode. Okay. I will. Because I was also thinking about what about designers like um, Eames, the Eames couple. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah, put them down. Okay. Yeah. This is Cliff. I'm so happy we got to talk about him. Love you, love you. Love you, love you. Bye. Bye.